You know, there are a few uh, passages in Scripture where there's just no way to get around it. There's no way to uh, make it funny. There's no way to tell a good joke that'll, that'll really make you ease into the passage. There's, a, there's a, uh, no way to soften it up. And we really have come to one of those passages. This probably is the penultimate passage that is like that in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, as we've been going through the book of Genesis uh, one chapter at a time, we come now to the, the uh, passage that really defines why the world is the way it is. It defines why there is so much corruption, why there is so much greed, why there is so much sin in the world. And as we come to this passage, there's just really no way around it. There's no way to make it sound good. There's no way to uh, give a light-hearted joke that will make you feel better about it. There's no way to, for me as the preacher to give you a word of encouragement about this passage. It's just what it is. And so as I come to this text today, I have to first start by not really apologizing. I'm not trying to uh, explain it away or apologize for what the Word of God says. But I'm trying to prepare you for the gravity and I want you really to feel the gravity of the text that we're going to consider today. Uh, my, one of my favorite preachers, and is, is really any Baptist's favorite preacher, is Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon said that the task of the preacher every Sunday is to, make, to either make their congregation angry with the Word of God or make the congregation angry with the preacher for preaching the Word of God. That that is the two tasks of the preacher. And either you will do one or do the other. And I want to tell you, I really don't want you to be angry with me today. But if I have to, I will make you angry because you need to be angry about the situation that we find ourselves in in the world in which we find ourselves living in. Because the world is not as it should be. And so I want to warn you today that I'm probably going to step on your toes. I mean to, okay? And so I don't, I don't want you to get up and run out when you hear something that might offend you. I want to tell you, please be patient. Please wait till the end. I promise you, the end is redemptive, the end is restorative, the end is everything that you know that Christ is, but it's going to take a little pain to get there, and we're going to have to persevere through it. And so if I say something that really gets on your nerves or sits on your, your particular issue that you have, wait. Wait for the end, because it's there that you'll find the redemption, the forgiveness, and the restoration that Jesus has in store for you. And there's really no other way around this passage than to read it all. And so we're going to read the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 3, and then I will pray for us and we'll get into the sermon. Genesis chapter 3, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 24 as we consider as my Bible has it, titled just two words, The Fall. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. God's Word says, now the, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, uh, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from uh, the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what can we say for this word except that it is heavy? Lord, 
It is not an easy thing to hear of the fall that led us all into sin and to death. It is not an easy thing to accept that the reason we stand here today under the condemnation of sin, uh, the reason that we are ashamed, the reason that we feel guilt, is ultimately because of one man and one woman's decision to go their own way, live life by their own terms, define things for what they would say them to be instead of what you would say them to be. Lord, we confess that we are just like them, though, that we fall into the same trap of saying that we would have things our own way, that we would live life by our own wisdom, that we would not seek what you say, but that rather we would seek our own terms. Father, forgive us. Lord, allow this word to speak to us. Although it may be heavy, although it may be difficult, allow it to reform us, allow it to transform us into who we should be. Lord, may we rest in what you say about us, not what we want to say about ourselves. Father, forgive us, cleanse us through the washing of your word. Give me the words to say that might encourage and build up and take away those words that would distract or lead astray. And may all these things be done for your glory and your honor. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've paid any attention to the news or to social media uh, these past few weeks, you know that the past few weeks have been a dark time in our country. If you've noticed, uh, both in the last two weeks, particularly both New York and Virginia have passed or attempted to pass legislation that would allow the abortion of a child up to the, the time of birth. In fact, uh, when asked by the Speaker of the Virginia House of Representatives if the, uh, if the bill that this woman was pr- uh, proposing, this congresswoman was proposing, would allow a mother to abort her child after she had gone into full-term labor, the congresswoman that was sponsoring the bill responded by saying, yes, my bill would allow for that. Many Christians have watched in stunned horror as these bills have come up and received actually wide support, widespread support for uh, the bills that have passed or been attempted to pass. For most Christians, we're always opposed to legislation that would support abortion, abortion, but uh, these bills seem to have caught us by surprise. Abortion is such a heinous act at whatever stage of development. It really makes two victims out of one sin. The woman who considers abortion uh, is, is caught in the decision of killing someone in order to hide her guilt and her shame, whether it's the call caused by a rape or an inconvenient situation or by a bad decision. She makes the decision to hide her guilt and her shame, and ultimately that does nothing but increase and exacerbate the guilt and the shame that she feels. Over and over testimonies say that it really never does get rid of the guilt and the shame. Rather, it causes more. It heaps it on in droves. These efforts to make abortion more commonplace 
are just the latest in a long stream of changes, both culturally and legislatively, that seem to turn the natural order on its head. They seem to take what is wise and to declare it to be foolish. And they seem to take what is foolish and declare it to be wise. Yet, while we are, can certainly look at this terrible development and say that it should not be so, and we can look at it and say that our culture is on a consistent slide down, uh, downhill, rather, really, these are just uh, indications of something broader in our culture. They're not the only problems with our culture. Really, they're not the worst problems with our culture. They're just the symptoms of a greater problem. And they're certainly not the most personal problem that we face in our culture today. You know, it was not so long ago that men uh, may have still been addicted to pornography, but they had to hide their addiction by, uh, by covering that addiction in a blacked, and, a blacked out and sealed cover. But now uh, pornography is considered commonplace and characters like to joke about it on sitcoms. And even the President of the United States likes to get a picture made with the new porn star or even get caught up in an affair with the latest porn star in Hollywood. Not too long ago, uh, divorce was often a mark of shame for a man or a woman, even though the Bible in certain cases allows for divorce. And yet, today, people celebrate not just the anniversary of their marriage on Facebook, but so often people celebrate the anniversary of their divorce on Facebook. It was not too long ago that cohabitation was a mark of shame and a reason for a preacher to refuse to perform a wedding. But now that same preacher might, be, might risk being run out of town on a rail for suggesting that a cohabiting couple ought to separate until they are married. These, these and many more sins that our culture smiles upon should produce within us a sense of guilt and shame. At one time they did, and I think even today they still do, but our culture has abolished guilt and shame. If your pregnancy brings you shame or causes inconvenience, then abort. If you struggle with your identity, then change it. If you don't like to be tied down in your marriage, get a, quote, no-fault divorce. If you don't want to make the commitment to marriage, you can have all the benefits of marriage without the commitment simply by living together. No shame. No guilt. Just do what seems right to you. But the effort to make ourselves into our own law has nothing new. Is nothing new. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through 23 that the pagans of his day had done the very same thing. He says in Romans 1, 18 through 23, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The pagans had taken God's wisdom and had exchanged it for a lie. And they had taken the image of God that was apparent in the creation and in other people that were around them. And they had exchanged it for images like birds and reptiles and creeping things. They had turned it, the worship of God into the worship of His creation. The Greeks believed that wisdom was inherited from an ancient king named Krakops. Uh, the ancient Mesopotamians that surrounded the Israelites of Moses' day believed that wisdom was represented by an angel named Nero. Throughout the Old uh, Testament and throughout the ancient world, pagans believed that one God or another held the keys to wisdom and to life. Uh, and all of these deities or these angels or these kings were symbolized by one consistent image. There was one image, one symbol that all of them have, whether it's Krekrops, who uh, was a god who, I mean, was a king who was half snake, half um, man, or the, uh, the, god, the angel Nera, who had a snake wrapped around him as a symbol of wisdom and life. All of these ancient pagan beliefs held one symbol in common. All of them believed that the symbol of wisdom and truth and life was represented by a snake. And all of them had different images that they would have for that representation of wisdom or of life. In fact, you've seen one of the symbols that... Uh, that is common among the Mesopotamians and the Greeks. It's one that you see every time you go into a doctor's office, every time you go into a pharmacy, every time you send your bill in to Blue Cross, Blue Shield, you see the image of two snakes wrapped around a staff. That image is called a caduceus, and that image is two snakes wrapped around a tree, a tree of life. For the ancient pagans, they believed that the gods held the key to life and to wisdom, and that ultimately that source of life and wisdom was represented by the symbol of a snake. And it's no coincidence that we find in the third chapter of Genesis a snake. But this snake, although he comes to claim that he is bringing truth and life to the first man and woman. Rather, what he really brings is deception and death. And we meet this snake sometime after the creation of the woman. And the man and woman, Adam and Eve, are walking in the midst of the garden. And Moses introduces this snake and he says that the snake was more crafty 
than any other beast of the field. Now that word crafty means it has a double meaning. It can mean prudent, and in some cases in the Bible it's used in a good way. In fact, uh, throughout the book of Psalms, uh, throughout the book of Proverbs, it's used to speak of being wise or being prudent. But the word crafty can also mean deceptive and conniving. And in this sense, Moses means it to be both. He means you to get the sense that the snake comes to offer wisdom to the uh, first man and the first woman, but really what he comes to offer is deception and death. So first, the serpent comes to the woman, and he does, there are three things that the serpent does that I want you to notice that turn God's order and God's God's goodness on its head. The first thing that the serpent does is the serpent preempts the created order that God has established. Remember, last time we met, we looked at Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, God creates this natural order that is good for man and woman. He creates man as the king of the world, the one who would rule over God's good creation and who would bring God's Word to bear in all every nook and every cranny of that creation. And He creates woman as the irreplaceable helpmate, the queen of creation that would help Adam in his rule over creation. And so God creates this good order in which Adam is the ruler and Eve is that irreplaceable helpmate. And Adam is the one who would subdue the earth and bring God's Word to bear. But the serpent doesn't come to Adam. Who does he come to? He comes to Eve. He, in this very act, turns the order that God had established on its head. And he comes to the one who is the helper rather than the one who is given the rule. Second, the serpent calls into question God's, uh, what God had actually said. Notice the first thing the serpent said is, Has God actually said that you should not eat of any tree that is in the garden? Notice here that the serpent knows the word of God. He knows the command that was given to Adam. This was not something that was foreign to him. But he comes and he distorts the word of God for his own gain. Not only does he question the Word of God, but notice also that he calls, he twists it, he changes it. Instead of saying, has God really said that you should not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? He says, has God really said that you should not eat of any tree? He distorts God's Word for his own gain. And lastly, the serpent questions the goodness of God. When Eve quotes back to him the law of God and says, no, we shouldn't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and, uh, instead of slurping away or slithering away, the serpent comes back and says, well, God, you know, he really lied to you. She will not, you will not surely die, but God doesn't want you to have your abundant life. God doesn't want you to have your best life. He wants you to work and toil under His law. And He doesn't want you to have the fullness of this life. But I've come to tell you that if you eat of this tree, then you will have knowledge like God. 
and you will be like him. And so Eve looks at the tree and the, sa- and the serpent tempts her that she can bypass the labor of being obedient to God and trusting Him and have wisdom on her own terms. She can know things by her own ingenuity and her own intelligence without coming to God and seeking His wisdom and His law. So Eve takes of the fruit and she eats it. And notice that it says that she gives it to her husband who was with her. Now this is something that is important to note. It's something that if you don't pick this up, you won't really understand the guilt that we now have as a result of this sin. Because the rest of the Bible, if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find that the Bible never refers to this sin as Eve's sin. Have you ever noticed that? The Bible doesn't refer to this sin as Eve's sin. Over and over again, the Bible says that this sin is the sin of Adam. Now, why is that? Now, remember, Adam is supposed to be the king over God's good creation. Think about this. If Adam had never sinned, if Adam was obedient to God... He would still be alive today and he would still be the king. He would still be the king that God had established him to be in the garden in the first place. And there's in Scripture, there's this idea that we kind of miss out on because we really don't have a concept for it in our American culture today. And it's the idea of what's called the federal head. That in the Bible... You find throughout Scripture that people are blessed or they are cursed based on the obedience or disobedience of one man. I want you to think of a a couple of examples. All of Israel is blessed because of Abraham. Have you ever thought about that? The blessing of Abraham extends to all of his descendants because of his faith. That's where the blessing comes from. There's a story also in the opposite side of that in the book of Joshua about a man named Achan who disobeyed the law of God. And as a result, it says that they brought his wife and his children and his donkeys and his cattle and everything that the man had ever touched and they stoned them all. Why? One man's disobedience led to the judgment of everything that he had ever touched. Not just that, but you think about the second commandment, not to commit idolatry. And the commandment says that the judgment of of God would extend to the third and fourth generation of those who disobeyed that law. There is the idea that one man's sin brings about the condemnation of all of his descendants because of his guilt and his sin. So Adam represented all of humanity when he allowed the serpent to speak vile things to Eve. And Adam represented us all when he knowingly took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and ate of it. There was only one thing that the serpent promised that actually came to be true, though. The only thing that the serpent promised 
that would happen when they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that actually came true was that Adam and Eve did know good and evil. But they didn't know good and evil as God knows good and evil. God knows evil like an oncologist knows cancer. Adam and Eve, when they took of the fruit of the God, knowledge of good and evil, knows, now knew evil like a cancer patient knows cancer. And so they were brought into shame. Notice it says in verse 7 that the first thing that happens to them after they, their eyes were opened and they could see is it said that they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. Now what changed? It says before they were created before this sin they were created naked and they were unashamed and now that they've committed this sin they are naked and ashamed. What changed? What changed is that they no longer valued God's good creation rightly. Instead, now they look at God's good creation and they covet and they long for something more. Just like they long to have God's wisdom without God, now they long to have God's goodness without God. And so the Adam looks at his wife, and instead of seeing a helper that is fit for him, he sees something that is wanting, some that, something that is lacking. And instead of Eve looking at her husband and seeing the king and the defender that God had given her, she looks at this man and she sees him for the imperfect and the defiled creature that he now is. Now they are ashamed because of their sin. The second thing that this sin causes is this, uh, this sin brought relational strife. Notice God finds them as He comes in the cool of the day and after He confronts them about the fact that they know that they are naked and that they've been hiding from them, He gets them to confess that they have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then He begins to pronounce curses on them. He pronounces curses on the serpent and then He pronounces a curse on the woman. And we talked a lot about this curse last week. And I'll just say, you notice two things about this curse that God pronounces in verse, four, uh, in verse 16. He says that she will have greater pains in childbearing and that her desire will be for her husband. In other words, her desire will be to rule over her husband, but her husband will rule over her. In this curse, there is relational strife that is a consistent and constant reminder that sin has corrupted the very core of who we are. The very most basic relationships that we have have been corrupted by the fall. And lastly, God pronounces uh, two curses on Adam. First, he will toil for his food. The good garden that God had given him to, that produces all kinds of food and that he never had to work for is now hidden from him. And instead, when he works, his hands will be cut by thorns 
And his hands will have to gain blisters and, and pain in working the ground. And he will fight for every kernel of corn that he ever gets to feed his family because of his sin. And not only that, but after toiling for a lifetime to gain the, every morsel of bread that he would have, God says he will die. Just as God had warned, he will come, become the dust that he has worked his whole life. From dust he was made, and to dust he shall return. But even in this miserable story, there are two glimpses of hope that we cannot miss. The first is found in verse 15. As God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent, He tells the serpent that he will crawl on his belly and that he will eat dust, which is a symbol of his shame because is a symbol of him losing his status in the in the uh, in the uh, council of God. He is cast out of God's council and now crawls on the ground as a as a show of his shame and his uh, uh, disdain before God. But then he t- says that I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and hers. And there's this promise about one seed, particularly of the woman. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. There's a promise in this that God would bring about a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would turn back the curse that the serpent had brought. And the second ray of hope that we find in this passage is in verse 21. Very short verse. But it says that God took an animal and He killed that animal. And from the, clo- the covering of that animal, He made a covering for the man and woman to hide their shame. I want you to recognize that the first death that ever occurred, the first death that ever occurred in the garden was not the death of a man. The first death was a sacrifice that was given to cover our shame. Brothers and, si- brothers and sisters, these may seem like small things, but there is great hope in this seed that was promised. With every new generation, there was a renewed hope that perhaps this man that was now a new part of God's creation would be the one who would reverse the curse. He would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so when Eve has Cain, there is great hope that God would reverse the curse through this man, that this would be the one to crush the head of the serpent. But oh, does he fail miserably. We'll see that next time we meet. And then Abraham comes and God promises that through Abraham all the world will be blessed. And yet Abraham is a man of so little faith. And he does such stupid stuff. And then David comes and David is the king after God's own heart. And he's the one that is going to establish an everlasting kingdom that will know no end. And then he steals a man's wife And he has that man killed. And we find that he's not the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. Over and over again, these men that have such great hope, such great potential, only show themselves to be corrupted by the same sin 
that Adam had. And then we find in Luke chapter 2 that a virgin has conceived and she bears a son named Jesus, which means literally God saves. And this seed of the woman is now here. But the seed of the woman doesn't conquer the serpent like we would think. He doesn't do things the way we would think He would do them. Instead of being born in a kingly palace where we would expect Him to be, He is born in a stable with goats and oxen and sheep. Instead of rubbing elbows with the religious and political elite, He lives with the poor and dines with sinners and tax collectors. Instead of riding into Jerusalem on a white horse and defeating the Roman armies, he is betrayed by the Jews and judged to be guilty by Jews and Roman alike. And he is stripped and he is beaten and he is hung naked on a cross for all to mock and for all to gloat at and for all to judge, and He takes our shame. But He bore our guilt and our shame willingly. Because on the cross, He would once and for all put our guilt and our shame to death. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15 says... And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the better Adam. Adam was to rule as God's vice-regent. Adam was to obey the Word of God and find his wisdom from God. And instead, he chose to find his wisdom in the things of this world. He exchanged the truth of God for a creeping serpent and plunged the whole of humanity into sin and death. But Jesus faced that same serpent in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus, though he was hungry and tired, he would not turn away from God's will. When the serpent distorted God's word, Jesus rightly used it to rebuke him. When the serpent offered him power apart from God's way, Jesus chose the way of the cross as the path of power. And so Jesus became the source of life for all who would trust Him. Paul puts it this way in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 15. He says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Friend, if you are seeking wisdom apart from God, that path ultimately leads to death. 
The world may entice you with earthly pleasures. Your friends may say that you owe it to yourself to deny your conscience and the Word of God and do what feels best for you. Some TV preacher may tell you that God really only wants what's best for you and only wants your best, you to have your best life now. But they are all lies. Apart from faith in Christ, all of that worldly wisdom is dust. And all of it will fade away, just like you will fade away. Brothers and sisters, we have the power of this new life. Because we have been forgiven, we now can forgive others. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says is the sign of, the, of a true and saving faith, that we forgive others. What did we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. The sign of the new kingdom, the sign of an abiding faith, is the fact that we now can forgive others. And, not only that, but because we have been restored, we can now restore others. So, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We can now go to the person that is hurting in their relationship. We can now go to the person who is hurting because of sin. We can now go to the person who believes that, who has believed their whole life that they are doing the right thing only to find that their world is now falling apart. And we can say that I have reconciliation and forgiveness for you because of what Jesus has done. We can bring restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness to this world through the message of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but we can endure the shame of this world because we know Christ. We can fight for life even when no one else will. We can cherish the unborn. We can adopt orphans. We can care for the widow. We can feed the poor. We can love the loveless. We can even minister to the abortionist because God has forgiven and restored us. And brother and sister, you may be ashamed of your past. You may feel like Adam and Eve, naked before a holy God, because you know that your past is mired in sin and is something that you carry with you to this day. But hear me, that is not the end of your story. Jesus Christ has forgiven you and has given you new life if you trust in Him. And just as Paul said in Romans chapter 5, all who trust in Him are now under His headship. We're no longer under the condemnation of Adam, but we are now under the new life that Jesus has brought for us. He took our shame and our guilt to the cross, and He bore it for us. You no longer are defined by who you were. You are defined by who Jesus is. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You that we are not defined by Adam. We are defined by Jesus. Father, forgive us 
when we turn away from You. Forgive us when we seek our own wisdom. Forgive us when we seek to know the world's wisdom and seek to know the world's ways. Give us a sense of the importance of Your Word. May we ever be dependent on it. May we seek Your wisdom in all that we do. I pray these things in Christ's name.